I would invite your attention to First uh, Peter chapter 5. I hope you haven't been too anxious this week about last week. Um, and uh, I'm going to continue talking about anxiety. Um, last week, more about anxiety and the promise of peace. And uh, today, more about anxiety and humility. So let, let me do just a, a very, very quick review from last week as we talked about the fact that anxiety and worry and fear are pretty much universal human struggles. We all deal with it. We all struggle with it. Uh, we worry about our kids. We worry about our finances. We worry about our marriages. Will I get married? Will I get divorced? What do people think about me? Does God really care about me? What about my job? What about all the germs in the world? What about terrorists? Does God love me? Uh, I mean, we could go on and on and on and on and on about the things that we think about. It's, it's uh, more of a, a, of a scanning of things that are happening around us. It's not always sinful. And so I want to make sure you understand that, that because the Bible talks so much about anxiety, uh, it's, it's often not much so much in a, a fact of outward sin, but these are feelings, uh, subjective things that come into our hearts that sort of flood us, and we know something's not quite right. Actually, it can be morally neutral. But it can also be sinful if it's rooted in other sins, like anger or bitterness or sexual sin or uh, some type of addiction um, greed, um, whatever the other sin might be, anxiety can be very much a part of that and can be rooted in that. So anxiety is everywhere. If I would give a difference between anxiety and fear, I'd say something like this. Anxiety is like it's scanning all around us. It's everywhere. Fear is more of has a definite object. Uh, fear, you can basically say, this is what I'm afraid of. Anxiety is, I'm just, I have this feeling of insecurity um, in me. Now, what we looked at last week was, though, the promise of peace. That uh, the Lord is near, is what Paul said in Philippians. The Lord is near, and therefore we have this peace which surpasses all understanding. And it's called the peace of God. It is indeed a, an objective feeling that things are okay, that things, things are right. But that peace of God flows out of another peace. It's the peace with God. So peace with God is sort of the vertical, my relationship to God based upon the merits of Christ, what Jesus did on the cross. He did for me. I'm now justified, as Paul says in Romans 5, by my faith. I have the righteousness of Christ, and I have this right relationship with God. So I have peace with God. God is no longer my enemy. And then that expresses itself on the horizontal, and that's where I have the peace of God. That's the feeling. That's sanctification. That's the subjective aspect of the objective. And we can't have the peace of God unless we have peace with God. Okay, so now today's text, let's look at this particular passage from 1 Peter 5. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do need you every hour. But your word teaches us that you're not just with us every hour. You're with us every second. You're so much aware of us and you care for us. And so we pray this morning for those who come here a little distracted, a little anxious, wanting that peace, wanting to know that they're right with you, wanting to know that you really do care for them, that you will never leave them or forsake them. We pray that your Holy Spirit will apply this passage to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. What I want to do with this text, two things. Um, First thing is the diagnosis. I want to take the text... And from the text we read, I want to diagnose the issue, diagnose the problem of anxiety. And then the second thing I want to do from the text is go back into the text and then look at the cure. So we have the diagnosis and we have the cure. So with the diagnosis, there is a connection of pride and anxiety. If you notice right before verse 6, in this, in this chapter, uh, Peter is saying something like this. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So there is this connection, and pride basically opposes grace. Pride dismisses grace. Pride says, I don't need grace. I can handle this myself. That's why the gospel sometimes to people is so hard to, to grasp. It's our pride that keeps us from thinking we're as bad as we really are. This is not original with me, but I've heard it for a long time. The little saying that says, I'm not that bad, and God is not that mad. And that's a person that just thinks they're okay, and whatever little mess up they have, they can straighten it out, they can fix it. But then there are others who think that the gospel is way too easy, and they're almost insulted by it. And there's an overconfidence in us, an overconfidence that we're in control, in, in control, and an overconfidence that we know how things should go, and we know how things want to go. And when things don't go the way we want them to go, that's when we get very anxious. And that's where there's such a connection with anxiety and pride. In the Old Testament book, the book of Daniel, You run into uh, a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. You probably know the story. And um, Nebuchadnezzar is on the the roof of his palace, and he's kind of walking around in his arrogance and his pride. And he says, look at me. Look at my kingdom. Look what I've built. Look how these people worship me, how these people bow down to me. 
and this is my kingdom, this is what I've done, and uh, it's like, you all are so blessed to have me as your king. And as he's going through this whole litany of praise to himself, there's a voice from heaven that says, <laughs> says Nebuchadnezzar, you're done. And the voice is saying, for seven years, you're going to go out, and he, he actually manifests what today we would classify as two types of mental illness. Uh, one is uh, uh, boanthropy, which bovine, anthropos man, where a person acts like a cow. Or the other one is lycanthropy, lycan, wolf, where a person acts like a wolf, a wolf man. Those are both uh, mental illnesses that some people experience. I've never seen anybody like that. But there's one here in Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. And he's eating grass like an oxen, the Bible says. And his hair is growing and his nails grow. And for seven years, he's insane as he has exalted himself. Now, what anxiety does, it predicts that God does not care. Have you asked that question of yourself? Does God really care? Remember Jesus in the boat? He's been teaching all day. He's tired. He wants to get to the other side. He goes back. He lays down in the boat. He's asleep. The storm comes up. His disciples come in. They shake him, and they say, Master, wake up, wake up. Don't you care that we're going to die? That's what they say. Don't you care? He gets up and goes, Peace, be still. And, you know, the hand of God, Jesus. But they ask that interesting question that you ask and I ask, don't you care? Don't you care about my marriage? Don't you care about my children? Don't you care about my finances? Don't you care? I mean, that's, that's where we go. That's where anxiety takes us because it predicts that God can't be trusted, that God doesn't care. A further diagnosis in this passage is there's a danger. We pray every Sunday, Lord, keep us from the evil one. Here is the devil in this text. He's a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There is a devil. The greatest uh, cover that the devil has is his illusion that he doesn't exist that you would maybe question that he doesn't exist, or obviously lots of people question that heaven and hell is not really true, and a devil. And then there are some people that give the devil way too much credit. But here is the devil, and the devil is a problem for us because he's an accuser. He's a slanderer, and he will use your anxiety against you. Think of... um, Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about anger, and he's saying, don't be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. In other words, all of our sin becomes ammunition for the devil to use. It's not just, oh, there's a devil, but it's what the devil uses that comes out of our hearts. There's a great book called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's an old book, 1700s, William Gurnall. He writes this. He says, if men hear a noise at nighttime, they cry out, the devil, the devil, and they run for their life. But they carry the devil around in their hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, You are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. 
Why don't you run from your pride crying, the devil to the, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentments and your grudges yelling, the devil, the devil? You see what he's saying? The bump in the night, oh, it's the devil. It's a monster. But does he, does, do you not know what's in your heart? The pride, the greed, the anxiety, all the things that he can use against you. He's the slanderer and he is the accuser. Further diagnosis says that because of all of this, we feel like we're suffering. And that suffering is real. Brittany mentioned this morning a theology of suffering. And it's, it's part of our life. It's, it's what happens to us actually in 1 Peter 4. And remember, these people in the book of Peter, are, they're being dispersed. Jewish believers, they're being spread out all over. They're being scattered. And they're facing persecution and all kinds of things happening to them. And so there is real suffering. And Peter says in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, if you, and this is hard. He says, if you are suffering according to the will of God. Suffering, see, is not outside the hand of God. If you're suffering according to the will of God, entrust yourself to a faithful creator and do the right thing. And so suffering comes, and we're not alone. Uh, there's a brotherhood of sufferers that we'll see later, and that becomes a problem. That's sort of where anxiety really begins to take us. So the actual call to humility, that in itself makes us anxious because if we have to deny ourselves, if we have to be humble before, the God, before God, then it's making us anxious because we believe we're being called to give up what we love, to give up what we think is the right way to live, to give up what we think should happen, to give up what we want, to give up our control, to give up our agenda, to give up our kingdom, the kingdom of self, which Nebuchadnezzar was talking about as opposed to the kingdom of God. But we're to live for something bigger than ourselves. And that's where we begin to find the cure. The cure of humility, and that is humility is the path that uh, brings us to a place where we see it lessen more and more. Humility means to be brought low. You dismiss reliance on yourself. Interestingly about the biblical model, and Jesus taught this, if you want to go up, you got to go down. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be exalted, you're to be humiliated. And our Lord Jesus gave us the pattern for that, gave us the example for that on the cross. And that's where we become so dependent on him because we know that he has suffered all the humiliation. And he's given us his righteousness. And he's saying to us, you can trust me. He's saying to us that, that, that I care for you. But you've got to resist that kingdom of self. Now here's the rest of the story with Nebuchadnezzar. Seven years, acting like an animal. The Lord brings him to his senses. His insanity leaves him. And he comes back to his senses. And when he does, you'll see it there in the last, chapter, the last part of chapter 4. He starts to praise God. Exalt the sovereign God. Your kingdom is great. You are worthy of all praise. And he was restored. 
because that humiliation, the work of God in his life, brought him to a place where he recognized God's kingdom and not just his own. Further diagnose, further cure, how does this work? Ed Welch has written quite a bit on the subject of fear and anxiety. And to make it a little more contemporary than Nebuchadnezzar, who had this great prayer and praise in Daniel 4, Ed Welch Welch says something like this. Lord, you are God and King. I am your servant. I know you owe me nothing. For some reason, you have given me everything in Jesus, and I trust you. And please give me grace to trust you. And he says, as you pray that, a few minutes later, your prayer will even move closer to Scripture. Father, forgive me for always wanting things my way. By your mighty hand, you have created all things. And by your mighty hand, you have rescued your people. I want to live under your mighty hand. Please have mercy. That's, that's the prayer of humility that's rejecting self honoring God, which it's interesting, we go to this text often and we start reading where it says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. But what comes first? Just like last week, what came first? The Lord is near, therefore you have a peace that passes all understanding. Here, humble yourselves before God, and then he says, cast all your cares on him. That's the kind of prayer that we pray as we begin to throw off those cares on to the Lord. And he will exalt you. He will lift you up. That's our future. The process even begins now. So what about the anxiety and the cares? We cast them on the Lord. We throw them away. The word is like to throw away or to throw off. We don't carry the cares. We place them on him. Where anxiety predicted that God doesn't care, humility predicts that God does care. And that's why we pray that way. That's why we have the ability and the trust to say, I can give you this. I don't carry this. I don't have to keep this. I can throw it on you. And it's it's totally throwing it away and throwing it on the Lord because he is indeed trustworthy. But what about the devil? What about that roaring lion who wants to devour us, who's a slanderer and a liar and an accuser? He tells us here in the text to be sober, that is to be watchful, to stay awake, to resist, to stand our ground. Don't don't budge. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't give him a foothold. Remember the mighty hand of God. When you feel the attacks, when you see the attacks coming even from your own heart and your own sin, remember the mighty hand of God. There's another story, actually in the book of Daniel. It's Daniel 6. You know this story well. Daniel is raised up in the ranks of the kingdom, and uh, there's a lot of professional jealousy about who he is and where he is. And so the people that don't like him conspire and they get the king to sign this edict that says you got to pray to, you, you don't pray to any other gods but, but Darius and you don't honor anybody else but Darius. And they have this edict signed. He puts his seal on it. And Daniel knows this is happening. 
And so when the thing is passed and it's put out there, Daniel goes right up, opens his window, and prays three times a day. And they catch him. And they go to the king and said, look, Daniel's violated this edict. And you know, the, the punishment is to be thrown in the lion's den. The king doesn't want to do it because he likes him. But he has to obey what he approved and what he sealed. And so Daniel is cast in the lion's den. I, I can't talk about a lion's den without telling you this story. Um, years ago, the church I pastored, we often had joint services with an African-American church. I got to know the preacher, and he would come to our church and preach and bring their choir, which was phenomenal. And then we'd go to his church, and I'd preach and take our little piddly choir, and it was miserable. <laughs> and, but when I would preach there, it was an amazing thing. If you know anything about African-American worship, the black church, I mean, they really get into it. I mean, we've lost some of that. We need to recover some of that. But, they, you know, and especially as a preacher, they help you. It's like you're preaching and they say, help him, Jesus. Help him stand. Keep him up. Keep him up. Keep him going. You know, and you just do that. Well, I was kind of getting into it. I mean, like, that's encouraging to hear some amens and to hear some keep it going. But what I didn't do was I didn't get Daniel out of the lion's den fast enough. And so I'm still dealing with this text and explaining this text. And a dear brother, kind of in the middle of the church, jumps up and says, get him out, get him out, get him out. <laughs> and, and you know that when we're in trouble, we want to see the mighty hand of God. And we're ready. We're ready to see the mighty hand of God take us out. And so the king comes down you know, in the, line, the next morning. You didn't sleep all The Bible says he didn't sleep all night. Comes down the next morning. Says, Daniel, did your God deliver you? And Daniel's like, I'm fine. By the mighty hand of God, he sent an angel. There's another story in Daniel. That Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know that. Four people were in the fiery furnace. It's not three. Jesus was in the fiery furnace. It's the mighty hand of God. That's what we do. And that's what we see about the devil. He can't compete with Jesus. Jesus has taken your sin. Jesus has made you right with God. Don't give the devil an opportunity to get you sidetracked. Stand firm in your faith. It's not so much how strong your faith is, how weak your faith is. It's the object of your faith. You know, here's a river that's frozen over, and you've got to get to the other side. And, you know, you can see the confident person, sort of the person that says, hey, I'm all prayed up, and I can, I can do this. I can walk across that ice. Well, you know, big faith in weak ice, you'll die. Or you can be the other guy that says, I don't know if I can walk across this or not. I am, my faith is so little, I'm so afraid. But little faith in strong ice, you'll get to the other side. The issue is the object of your faith. The issue is Jesus. What about the suffering? We don't suffer alone. He says we're not to be isolated that this has been experienced by the brotherhood. These folks have been scattered and dispersed. And 
there are others suffering. And as we suffer together, we experience great trust and great hope as we encourage one another. That's what it is on this side of heaven until the new heavens and the new earth. And here it comes, the power of God's grace in Jesus. This is where he's going to take us eventually to this, but there's a process now that's going on. And he says there are four things. You're going to be through Jesus and his grace. You're going to be restored. That is, you're going to be made useful again. It's like a a term of fixing a broken arm, setting it so it becomes useful again, or mending a net so it's useful again. You're going to be made useful again. You're going to be made complete and perfect. It's coming. He confirms us that we are supported by him. He strengthens us that we're able to move and to be effective. And he establishes us on a very firm, solid foundation. And that's how God is at work now through Jesus in us, which brings us to humility, which brings us to a place that's a pathway for the cure of all the anxiety that we experience. Let me conclude with just these applications. Anxiety becomes our friend because it opens the door of faith. It just, something that makes us trust Jesus more, something that says, I got to give this to Jesus. I got to lay this on the Lord. I'm not going to carry this. And it opens that door to try that, to go through that door and to do actually what the scripture says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Secondly, it makes me, anxiety makes me a friend to others. You know, there's just lots of us that struggle with this. Depression, fear, anxiety, and we don't move against those folks. We don't move away from them. We're to move toward them. This makes you a friend to those who struggle as together you experience that suffering, that brotherhood, and to see the encouragement that you can bring. We turn away from self, and we turn away from every substitute for Jesus. There are other things that people might say that will help your anxiety. Nothing helps your anxiety like Jesus. He's been there. He has suffered. He was humiliated on our behalf. We seek the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of self. We see the drastic change in a man like Nebuchadnezzar. We see the change in our own lives when we give up our kingdom and run away from our kingdom and embrace the kingdom of God. As the last verse of our text actually says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is so overwhelming, this text. And how God is at work that we can really just only worship as we think about how God cares for us, cares for us in the midst of our anxiety. Let's pray. Father, thank you for hearing us as we pray. Thank you for being so much a part of our lives and caring for us as you do. We pray that people will walk away this morning from this time of worship and from this table with great encouragement by your Holy Spirit. We do pray in Christ's name. Amen.